One of the longest walks ever taken was by Jean Beliveau. 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 Let's go with Beliveau. He spent 11 years walking 46,600 miles across 64 countries. This Canada native did so in an effort to raise awareness for children who suffer from violence. He called it a walk for peace. Now, I can't imagine walking for a decade, but imagine walking for several hundred years. That's the image we're given of two of Adam's godly descendants who, we're told, walked with God. Of course, as we'll see, their lives were full of a lot more than just sort of walking around. We're in a section of Genesis where God is contrasting for us two lineages. Last time we saw the line of Cain, the murderer, and it was full of rebellion, full of violence, full of hard-heartedness toward God. It was also full of great worldly feats. But tonight the Lord put Seth's line on display, the line from which the deliverer would ultimately come. In the list, there are two standouts for us, Enoch and Noah. Enoch walked with God for 365 years. Noah would do so for 950. They didn't walk with God perfectly, of course, but we find that their walks were potent and consequential, producing great amounts of spiritual fruit and a great testimony that has lasted for thousands of years. They remind us that we are all called to walk with God as well. Now, this analogy of walking with God seems to be a favorite of his. He uses it here in the beginning of his special revelation. In one of his most significant post-resurrection appearances, Jesus went on a walk with two believers on the road to Emmaus. During the time of the kings of Israel and Judah, the kings are always individually appraised by whether they walked in the ways of David, which were the ways of the Lord, or whether they walked in the wicked ways of Jeroboam or the pagan kings around them. And so God loves this analogy. What does it mean to walk with God? It's a term we use a lot, but let's make sure we're all on the same page. Bruce Waltke writes this, to walk with God denotes to enjoy supernatural, intimate fellowship with God, not merely to live a pious life. It makes sense if we think about this analogy for a minute. Walking with someone isn't the same as busting out your cardio on the treadmill in the garage, right? They're two somewhat similar activities, but but when you start thinking about them, there's a lot of very significant differences. To walk with someone requires that you have a common goal. As the prophet Amos said, can two walk together without agreeing to the direction? Of course, in this life, we can't see beyond the here and now. We don't know what today or tonight or tomorrow holds, but the Lord does. And so we have to trust God who does know the way. He does know what's coming. He has carved out this path for us. And so we agree with him where he's going and we trust him and we go with him. And so to walk with him means that we agree with the route that he has laid out before us. To walk with someone requires closeness. If you go on a walk with a friend or your spouse, you walk in close proximity. If you're 100 yards apart, you're not walking together. You're walking in the same general area, but no one would say, oh yeah, they're taking a walk together. To walk with someone means that you'll keep a similar pace. Now, oftentimes we think, okay, I gotta keep pace with the Lord and, and God's pressing on and I gotta, you know, I gotta hustle to follow after him. Hey, listen, that's not how the Lord leads us. I mean, we do need to pay attention to how God is leading and press into him and, 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 and earnestly run the race, right, is what Paul told us. 
But on the spiritual level, let's be honest, we follow pretty slowly in comparison to what we could do most of the time. And even if we don't, we're hiking with a limp like Jacob would later in his life. He he spent the rest of his life after his encounter, his wrestling with the Lord, he walked with a limp the whole rest of his life. And because we live in bodies of flesh in a fallen world, we walk with a limp because we have sin and temptation and things that we're dealing with as the Lord continues to perfect the faith in us and continues to conform us to his image. And so we all fall short, of course, but the Lord doesn't leave us in the dust when that happens. He knows our weaknesses, we're told in the Psalms. And he is a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, we're told in the book of Hebrews. And so he keeps pace with us. That doesn't mean we should just slog around. What did Paul say? Like I said, he said, hey, let's run the race. Let's throw off every weight that is gonna encumber us. But we need to stop thinking of, of God standing angrily, tapping his foot, saying, hey, where are you guys? I've been up at this corner for an hour and a half waiting for you, you know, lollygaggers back there. When you walk with someone, you're going to find yourself in personal conversation with them, at least if you're any kind of decent person. <laughs> As one source pointed out, it really wouldn't do for you to bring a kazoo along and blow it the whole time while you're on a walk with someone. They say that wouldn't be satisfying for you or for them. And so there's going to be personal communication with that individual. The Bible explains walking with God as being an ongoing personal progression of faith and growth in our understanding of the Lord and our our obedience to his will. Colossians chapter three is a very practical passage for how we are to walk with God. It gives us both positive instructions of what to do, like setting our minds on heavenly things and putting on compassion and putting to death what belongs to our earthly nature. And that chapter also gives us negative instructions, things not to do, like don't lie to one another, put away anger, filthy language, all of these other things that you used to walk in, Paul says. He says, hey, put those things away. All told, walking with God is about an active and personal relationship with God who desires to lead us and guide us and be known by us and shape our lives according to his glorious standard. It's not just about conduct but also about communion with him. That was the failure of the Pharisees, after all. It was all conduct and no communion. They honored God with their lips and with their actions, but their hearts were far from him. And so with these ideas in our minds, let's take a look at a couple of these faithful long walkers. Verse one, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Your version may say something like, this is the book of the generations of Adam or the book of the genealogy of Adam. That term book or record that you see there, it is a technical term in the Hebrew. And the book of Genesis is actually broken up into 11 sections, each one marked out by this same term, the book of the genealogy or the record of the generations. We've already seen it once, in fact, back in chapter two, where we saw the history of the heavens and the earth, same term there. Like this book of Adam, the rest of the sections of Genesis are going to surround individuals. It's going to be the book of Noah, the book of Noah's sons, the book of Edom and these different, uh, or sorry, Esau and these different individuals. And we find that 
each section, there's 11 of them, they alternate. They go genealogy narrative, genealogy narrative, genealogy narrative. And so a uh, very interesting way that the book is, is organized. Now notice here in verse one where it says, on the day that God created man. And so the book makes itself very clear again that we are to accept it as literal and historical. It wasn't in the age or in the millennia or the eon that man evolved or was slowly created uh, you know, over you know, some long, long day age or anything like that. It says, hey, on the day that God created man. And so, in fact, this genealogy we're reading is even repeated uh, in both First Chronicles and later in the Gospel of Luke, this exact genealogy that we're going to read tonight. And so if we, if we look at the, the first 11 chapters of Genesis and we say, well, that was all mythology, it's too hard to swallow things like a global flood and a six-day creation week and all of that sort of thing, we just can't do it. it. It creates real problems for us. It's not an essential. And if, and if you come to the conclusion that hey, I'm more of a day-age creationist or you know, I'm, I ascribe to the gap theory, that's fine. Nobody's mad at you. It creates real problems, though, uh, because this exact same lineage is going to be listed in the book of Luke and in the book of First Chronicles. And so if we, have, if we assume that Adam is a, not a literal person, we don't really have a right to assume that David or Jesus were literal people because they're all listed together in God's word. We're reminded not only that these were real people, but as people, they were specially blessed by God. Mankind, human beings, are a unique creation in God's universe. We have a capacity to know and love God that no other creature has. Even after the fall, even after everything had been spoiled by sin, when so much had been ruined, God still preserved that capacity that we have to have a relationship with him, to love him and to know him. And that's such a great blessing. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that were blessed. We are blessed as well. Verse three, Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years, and then he died. Using this verse as a basis, I've heard it said that human beings aren't really created in the image of God anymore. The argument goes, look, it says right there, Seth was made in the image of Adam, and that just Adam was made in the image of God. I'm not exactly sure what the point of that argument is. You know, I've some one of my favorite Bible teachers got really deep into this in a sermon I was listening to one time. Um, I don't get what the point is. Seth was made in the image of Adam who was made in the image of God. They're the same image. And so I see no reason to downgrade humanity's worth. This does remind us that after Adam, there was a serious alteration that was now stamped in, into humanity. Every single human being received it, and that's sin. Uh, sin is passed on, spreading throughout creation, but passed from father to child. And it had a very significant, very real consequence that we see right here, and that's death. Adam's death, of course, was not the first one on the earth, nor the first one we've even read about, but it would have been an absolutely profound and solemn moment when he breathed his last and was returned to the ground from which he was made. It must have been such a strange day and such a strange occasion for his sons and grandsons to bury him and realize, okay, this was Adam, the created man. And 
from dust he came and to dust he is returning. And I'm sure it was uh, uh, maybe the most profound funeral of all time. I imagine Adam and Eve must have struggled with incredible guilt as they walked the earth from time to time, watching humans die, animals die, sorrow multiplying, evil spreading. They're human beings like we are. If you were Adam and Eve and you had made the choice to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, despite your you know, ongoing relationship with God, let's be real. We would have had those moments where you just thought, man, this is all on me. I, I, I'm the one that, that brought this sin into the world. And yet, what do we see? We see we saw in the previous passages that Eve had enduring hope in the coming deliverer. She wasn't you know, crushed by the guilt of her sin. We see Adam training up his descendants in the ways of God. Yes, they were responsible for what had happened, but they were not ruined. They were not crushed. They weren't so brokenhearted that they couldn't continue to faithfully walk with the Lord. God's mercy overflowed, and they were able to continue walking in faith and in that hope, that real hope that God himself would make all things right again. Now, we're all guilty of sin as well, right? We're guilty of inherited sin from our first parents, but we're also, all, every one of us, guilty of individual acts of sin uh, that we uh, have been perpetrating from the first day that we were ever alive, right? All of those missteps, all of those transgressions, all of those times where we should have done the right thing but didn't do it, all of those times where we willfully did the wrong thing, sins of commission, sins of omission, all of these different ways that we fall short of the glory of God. If you are feeling guilt this evening about your sin, if you feel the weight of it, on one hand, that has a good purpose, right? Because sin is serious and we need to take it seriously and treat it seriously and not just slough it off and say it's not a big deal. Our sin nailed Jesus to the cross, right? It wasn't just Adam and Eve. It's because he looked through all of history and he saw you and me and saw all of the wrong things we were gonna do as well. And he said, yeah, because of that, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm gonna go to Calvary and I'm going to lay down my life and die this agonizing death so that I can deal with your and my sin as well. And so we wanna take it seriously. But at the same time, Follow Adam and Eve's example here. Don't carry that weight any longer. That sin has been dealt with. Lay it down at the cross where all of the wrong things that we have done and all the wrongs done to us were nailed there with the deliverer who finally came to take care of sin once and for all and who is going to make right everything that has gone wrong. And we await his return where all things will be redeemed, all things will be restored, and we will live in perfect glory with him forever and ever. And so sin is serious, but it's been dealt with. And if you're a child of God, if you're born again, don't carry the weight of your sin anymore. Adam lived 930 years. That means that he lived long enough to see Noah's dad turn 56. That's pretty neat. He didn't get to meet Noah, but it's remarkable to think about what sort of access and influence Adam and Eve would have had to these multiple generations of people. It's hard. We don't have as much information as we would maybe like, but I mean, Adam and Eve would have been accessible people. I, I can guarantee you that, that they would have been, been happy to share all of the information that they had concerning the Lord and concerning the young history that they had been a part of and how people could wait for the deliverer, hope in the deliverer, have their sins dealt with through sacrifice, all of those sorts of things. 
In fact, a lot of scholars think that when it talks about the book of the record of, of Adam's generations here, they think that he prepared uh, the one previous to that. We're in the second book now, and Adam's dead, so he's not writing after this. But they think he probably actually prepared the first book that we read about last time. These were long centuries. Adam must have wondered at some point, what is God waiting for? Remember, Eve kept thinking, this kid's the deliverer. No, he murdered somebody. Now this kid's the deliverer. Well, give or take a few thousand years. <laughs> you know, you're gonna have to wait. And so, of course, like all of us, I'm sure at some point Adam and Eve said, man, what is God waiting for? We wonder that today. And the answer to Adam's wondering would have been to say that God was waiting for you and me. I'm glad that God allowed me to exist and to get saved and, and that I get to spend eternity in heaven with those of you who are born again and all that came before us and those who will come after us. And so God was waiting for you and I. And his long suffering still waits today because God desires to populate eternity with people. People are out there blaming God for all of the suffering in the world. It's not his fault at all. It's, it's ours, it's humanity's fault. And what is God doing? He's doing all of this work and showing all of this patience and pouring out all this grace so that he can populate eternity with humans like us, so that we can have a place to live forever and ever with him in perfection. Long section, now verse six. Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Seth's life lasted 912 years, then he died. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived 815 years after he fathered Kenan and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enosh's life, lived 900, uh, Enosh's life lasted for 905 years and then he died. Kenan was 70 years old when he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived 840 years after he fathered Mahalalel and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Kenan's life lasted 910 years and then he died. Mahalalel was 65 years old when he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived 830 years after he fathered Jared and he fathered other sons and daughters. And so Mahalalel's life lasted 895 years, then he died. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch and he fathered other sons and daughters. And so Jared's life lasted 962 years and then he died. I do find it kind of interesting that we still have Seth's and Jared's, but no Mahalalel's and no Enosh's. So if you're, get with the program, young parents. <laughs> this section feels repetitive, admittedly, kind of like a record of routine things, but we can see that what is routine here, living a life, having a family, walking with God, is actually a very significant part of the miraculous providential work of God. Remember, this, what we just read, this is the road that leads to Jesus, right? This is the, the path that God is taking to bring the deliverer. After thousands of years of waiting, the deliverer was finally gonna come through this line. And so what seems routine is actually a beautiful uh, testimony of God's miraculous providential work. In your life and in mine, God is still accomplishing his providence, even in our routine experiences and activities. Your family life is not insignificant to God or to history. In two of his letters, Paul celebrates what he calls a quiet life. He says, hey, we should strive to just live a normal, quiet life, full of the Spirit, going about our business as the Lord leads us, a regular life that is full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that pleases God and that it 
God uses those regular lives to bring others to deliverance in Jesus, right? So the, the Messiah has come. We're not part of the line that brings the Messiah to the world, but we are now part of God's providential work to bring the world to the Messiah. Through our regular mundane lives, God says, I'm gonna use you providentially and spiritually and wonderfully to bring people deliverance in a similar way that he used this line of people to bring the deliverer. And I think that is a wonderful encouragement. Verse 21 Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. There's a sudden change in the format and we're meant to notice. We're told that this man walked with God. Now that doesn't mean the others didn't. We know almost nothing about them, but remember that the context is a comparison between the God-rejecting line of Cain and the God-believing line of Seth. We'll also be told in Genesis 6 that Noah too walked with God. Along the way, they had regular lives, wives and kids, those sorts of things. But we are told in the New Testament that Noah and Enoch specifically were also preachers to the world around them. In fact, the book of Jude tells us that Enoch prophesied about the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. It quotes him. How did he know about these things? We don't know but they were on some level in some way revealed to him. It's super interesting that the first prophet that you know, we read about, Enoch in the Bible, he is talking about the second coming of Christ, coming with 10,000s of, uh, of his followers. It's an amazing thing that God said right from the beginning, hey, in the end, I'm gonna wrap this all up. And he gives, he gives Enoch an eschatological message, talking about the end times, talking about the second coming of, of this Christ who Enoch didn't know anything about, but he had somehow revealed some of this to him. His message could be summarized this way when we look at the book of Jude. Enoch went around saying, listen, if you live according to your own desires, you're going to be judged. Obviously, he said more than that, but if you boil it down, that was his, his message to the world around him. And that message is as true today as it was 4,000 years ago. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that if we walk in the ways of your heart and the desire of your eyes, know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. And the reason is because the heart is full of sin. It is uh, desperately wicked and messed up. And all of us have gone astray. Not one of us is righteous. No, not one. And so when we go our own way, when we follow our own desires, we're going to follow into sin. And therefore, we're going to come under judgment because a perfect holy God must judge sin. And so you can either have your sin judged at the cross where Jesus says, I will take the judgment, I will take the penalty, I will take everything that you deserve, I will pay the price so that you can be made clean, I'll put my robe of righteousness on you, and it's finished, the debt is paid, I take away your debt, I install my riches into your life, your spiritual account, or you can have your sin judged by God after you die, or at the great white throne judgment. And so that's the choice. To be saved, a person must turn to God, believe in God, walk with him who leads to life instead of death. By the way, there are three apocryphal books said to have been written by Enoch. One of them is quoted by Jude. That doesn't mean that the rest of that book or his other so-called books were actually written by Enoch or that they should be treated as scripture. But that particular quote found in Jude 14 and 15 is genuine and is included by God the Holy Spirit in the canon. It's a super interesting book. I encourage you to look into it, but 
We can't say, well, that book of Enoch is probably should have been in the Bible too. Well, what should have been in the Bible is what we have, right? And this quote, the, God the Holy Spirit gave the thumbs up to and not the rest. So read it and with a grain of salt and don't assume that it needs to all be included. We can't verify everything about those books. Verse 23, so Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then he was not there because God took him. We would say that Enoch was raptured, taken up bodily to be with the Lord without experiencing physical death. The same thing would happen to Elijah centuries later. And the same thing will happen to believers who are alive at the end of the church age. The word there means that God snatched him, caught him up. And it is the same term used in Psalm 73 where we read this, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me up in glory. And so the question is, if you have this godly man, this prophet preacher who is so faithful, why cut his life on earth so short? Uh, only about a third as long as everybody else around him was living. God knew judgment was coming. Wouldn't it be great to leave Enoch there? He takes Enoch up to heaven 669 years before the flood. Wouldn't it have been better to leave him there to preach? Well, first of all, there were other preachers. This is the godly line. He wasn't the only one. Noah would become a preacher after he uh, was born and grown. But second, we learn that God really likes to set up what we call types in scripture and in history, meaning he accomplishes things that can be looked back upon to teach us truth about what is yet to come. For example, when Abraham is told to offer his son Isaac there on Mount Moriah, that is a type a picture, an image of God the Father who did not spare his own son, but sacrificed him. He is the Lamb of God provided by God himself to take away the sins of the world. Or the bronze snake that Moses made and set up in the wilderness there. People had grumbled and complained against God. They were wrong before God. God sent snakes into the midst of the camp. They were biting people and people were dying from it. And so God said, hey, these people are being judged because of their sin, but here's what I want you to do, Moses. Put this snake up on a pillar and anyone who turns and looks at that snake, if they will turn and look at that snake, they will be saved, they will be healed, everything will be made right. The, the, the vipers won't affect them at all. And so, of course, that is a type of Jesus lifted up on the cross and that anyone can simply look to him in faith and be saved. Enoch is part of a type. Judgment was coming. Enoch was warning people there would be uh, only one way of escape, and that's God's way. And then what happened? One of God's people, Enoch, was suddenly snatched away, and another of God's people, Noah, would be saved through the judgment on an ark, right? So this is a wonderful type, a powerful type of what God's plan is for the end of human history. The church, represented by Enoch, will be caught away suddenly. Then there will be an interval of time and God's people, the Jews, will be saved through the tribulation. They will be preserved and protected by God through that judgment and brought through it safe and sound. One other note about Enoch, one source points out that the phrasing of the Hebrew suggests that Enoch and God got along, quote, end quote. I, I like that. That was just kind of fun. I think it's a wonderful sentiment to consider. Do we get along with God in our personal lives? If, if not, it's probably because we're harboring some resentment toward him or assuming that we know better than he does. And, he, and we don't. We just don't. 
We, in our humanity and in the, the pride of our hearts, we think that we know better. We think we have good ideas. We think that if God would just do what we want, everything would be so well. And we do not know better than God. He is altogether right. He is altogether loving. He is altogether caring. He's altogether mindful of us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. If that's, it's amazing to, to re- think that's even possible, but it is. And he knows. And so if we're having trouble in our lives getting along with God, getting along with his leading, getting along with his boundaries, getting along with his commandments, the defect is in us. And we should be like David and invite him to search us and know us and see if there be any wicked way in us so that he might lead us in the way everlasting. Verse 25, Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years and then he died. This is a different Lamech than last time, okay? They were cousins, two different guys. God had pronounced judgment through his servant Enoch, but before judgment came, God waited and waited and waited and waited. He waited through the lifespan of the oldest man to ever live. If that's not a great picture of God's long-suffering grace, I don't know what it is. His long-suffering is great. Uh, it is just, just immense. Because God really does want to save. He's not willing that any should perish. And this gives us context to why God is waiting today, why he allows so much suffering and wrong to continue. It's not because he's you know, causing it or because... He's powerless to do anything about it. It's because he wants a few more people to be brought into his family and to be brought, uh, to be bought back from their sin and rescued from death. That's why he's waiting. His long suffering waits. Verse 28, Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son and he named him Noah saying, this one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Clearly, Lamech had hope in God, had communion with God. He knew that God was going to do something significant in Noah's life. He was focused on that promised deliverance that had been passed down from Adam to son to son to son. We should be focused on the coming deliverance as well. We know that one day the deliverer is going to come back. Jesus is going to return. He's going to redeem everything, set up his kingdom here on the earth. But it's interesting, the deliverance that God would work through Noah was almost assuredly not what Lamech had in mind. What did he say here? He's like, okay, Noah's gonna bring us relief from like all the trouble with the land that we're having. Kind of, Uh, (laughs) I don't, you know. He was hoping things would be restored and rolled back to more of an Edenic state, but that's not exactly what was gonna happen. As we know, that wasn't the plan for Noah's life. Instead, God would bring deliverance through Noah, but it was in the form of a choice. Noah would build the ark, but he would also preach to the wicked world around him and give them a choice. Peter compared it to baptism, which is, of course, a choice, whether a person will surrender and believe God and identify with him and walk with him, or whether they will say, no, thank you, and go their own way. The deliverance worked through Noah would also be a choice. Would they join him on the ark or would they say no? Sadly, everyone said no, other than Noah's immediate family. 
I'm sure the wicked of the world were also sick and tired of the agonizing labor of their hands too, but would they turn from their wickedness? That was the price tag on deliverance in this scene. That was the requirement for their rescue. Verse 30, Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah and he fathered other sons and daughters. And so Lamech's life lasted 777 years, then he died. Noah was 500 years old when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Lamech died five years before the flood. Methuselah died the year of the flood. This had led some to speculate that he was one of the wicked and that he died in the flood. It's only speculation. What we do know is that Methuselah's father was a faithful follower of God. Methuselah's son was a faithful follower of God. So I see no need for us to trash his memory and suggest that Methuselah was some devil dog. So why, why assume the worst? This, the genealogy leading to Jesus will take a pause here so that we can focus on Noah and his family in the coming chapters. Now, here's something to think about. The story we know of Noah's walk with the Lord, right? Noah and his ark and everything. It comes halfway into his life, 500 years into his life. He lived a total of 950 years. Of course, we can assume he was walking with God long before his fifth century, but it's a good reminder that God's work is not only for the young or only for the old or for the very young or the very old or for the middle-aged. He works and moves in each of our lives, accomplishing his purposes as we walk with him. There's no limit on who God can work with if they make themselves available to him, whether it's a little boy like Samuel or an old man like Noah. God can use and loves to use all of his people. Jean Beliveau is celebrated by some people for his walk for peace. Dig a little deeper, though, and you find some sad realities surrounding his long walk. First of all, he admits he made the plan to take this walk because he was in a midlife crisis and just wanted a change. He hid his plan from his wife and children until a month before he left. When asked if he would periodically return home to be with them, he told his wife, I'll be back in 10 years. He took his trip and relished meeting Nobel laureates like Nelson Mandela along the way. But meanwhile, he missed the birth of his grandchildren, the passing of his father. What did he accomplish? Has he won peace for the world? Has he ended violence against children? He made a name for himself, but abandoned his own children in the process of his long walk. In a photo op on his walk, President Mandela said to him, the world needs people like you. No, the world needs people like Enoch and Noah, people who love the Lord and walk with him, people who honor their families and seek the Lord in them and train up their families to honor the Lord, people who are faithful to the word of God and the callings of God. Let's be those people. Let's take a walk with our Lord. So follow the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous.